Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. As we approach the August 21st launch of the National Prison Strike, KiteLine's focusing on the historic and recent precedents for the current prisoners' movement. This strike, called by jailhouse lawyers speak, along with a growing coalition of grassroots prisoners' groups, is grounded in four decades of organizing, symbolized by George Jackson's state assassination in 1971 and the Attica prison uprising, which kicked off in response. More recently, it builds on and learns from the 2016 national prison strike. Outside supporters are learning lessons too, and prioritizing anti-repression organizing. Jailhouse Lawyers Speak is already reporting that organizers are being thrown into solitary in South Carolina, as have many other prisoners who will be mentioned later in the episode. We open today with a short history of the Lucasville Uprising in Ohio, and then move to a statement from Kevin Rashid Johnson, and end by speaking with an organizer with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee and the Fire Inside Collective, who shares with us an important introduction to the prisoners' movement. Let's get started. This week, we'll take a closer look at the Lucasville Uprising, which you might remember from past episodes featuring Keith Lamar and Sadiq Hassan, two of the men who were sentenced to death in the aftermath of the rebellion. One of the most prominent in recent U.S. history, the uprising at Lucasville began on Easter Sunday, April 11, 1993, at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility, or SOCF, in Lucasville, Ohio. It lasted 11 days, by the end of which nine inmates and one guard were dead. In his essay titled Examining Lucasville, Stoughton Lynn presents us with an overview of the events, describing, quote, a prisoner body of more than 1,800, a majority of them black men from Ohio's inner cities, guarded by correctional officers largely recruited from the entirely or almost entirely white community in Scioto County. A prison administration determined to suppress dissent after the murder of an educator in 1990, an 11-day occupation by more than 400 men, 10 homicides, dialogue between the parties ending in peaceful surrender, and about 50 prosecutions, resulting in five capital convictions and numerous other sentences." In order to understand the background of the riot, as well as its lasting influence and implications, it's important for us to consider the conditions leading up to it. For years prior to April 11, 1993, the administration had been instituting increasingly restrictive measures. Abuse by guards and poor living conditions were leading to growing prisoner unrest. A 1989 survey by the Correctional Institution Inspection Committee reported that prisoners who had been interviewed at SOCF, quote, relayed fears and predictions of a major disturbance unlike any ever seen in Ohio prison history, unquote. In 1990, teacher Beverly Joe Taylor was murdered in the prison, prompting Warden Arthur Tate to crack down with a series of oppressive measures that he called Operation Shakedown, one of which limited prisoners' communication with the outside world to a single five-minute phone call per year. Another source of conflict was the administration's encouragement of snitching and reliance on informants to keep tabs on inmate activities and to maintain control of the prison. This practice inevitably stoked tensions between prisoners, playing an obvious role in the ensuing violence. The first five men killed had been publicly identified as snitches. The uprising itself began on Sunday afternoon as a small-scale peaceful protest by a group of Muslim inmates who opposed the forced tuberculosis test in the prison, which violated their religious convictions by exposing them to alcohol. The group planned to occupy and blockade one cell pod to raise awareness and start a dialogue about their concerns. Shortly after, other inmates unaffiliated with the Muslim community joined in, and the protest spread spontaneously across the entire L block, which has more than 750 men and was short-staffed that afternoon due to the holiday, leading to what one Scioto County Sheriff's dispatcher described as, quote, a full-scale riot, unquote. That evening, five prisoners were killed and eight guards were taken hostage. On Monday the 12th, the state cut off water and electricity to the building. 
It wasn't until Wednesday that they sent any food or drinking water to those trapped inside, and the electricity remained disconnected. Over the next few days, prisoners collectively wrote a list of demands, which included hiring more guards of color, firing the warden, and permission to contact the media. Early on, a reporter from a Cleveland newspaper was allowed to speak to inmates over the phone, but was cut off once they started addressing their demands. Concerned that they were not being taken seriously, on Wednesday some of the rebels hung a banner threatening to kill a hostage if their demands were not met. At a press conference that evening, a spokesperson for the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections spoke dismissively about the threat, a choice that Stoughton Lind argues, quote, practically guaranteed a hostage death, unquote. The following day, Officer Valandingham's body was found in the prison yard. That night, another hostage was released in exchange for a 15-minute radio broadcast during which they relayed their concerns to the public. During the speech, they also asserted that participants represented multiple groups working in solidarity with one another, stating, quote, Black and white alike have joined hands at SOCF and have become one strong unit, unquote. After becoming the longest prison rebellion involving fatalities in U.S. history, the occupation of L Block eventually ended on Wednesday, April 22nd. After the state agreed to review their demands and Warden Tate signed off on the conditions of their surrender, the inmates released the remaining hostages and walked out of the prison. Despite a no-retaliation clause in the terms of surrender signed by the warden, shortly after the uprising ended, the state began pursuing large-scale prosecution of those involved. Nearly 50 men were convicted and sentenced to long-term prison sentences, and five were given the death penalty for their alleged roles in the deaths of Officer Vallandingham and the nine inmates who were killed over the 11-day occupation. In the 25 years since the uprising, the state prosecution has come under intense scrutiny for what many see as premeditated and targeted retaliation against inmates who had expressed criticism of the administration or engaged in revolutionary activity. The five capital murder convictions of Jason Robb, George Skats, Keith Lamar, Sadiq Hassan, and Greg Curry, now known as the Lucasville Five, have drawn criticism from human rights groups and supporters across the world. After the trials, one of the survivors, Emmanuel Newell, admitted to having been approached by state prosecutors before they had even begun their investigations, who provided him with a list of names, including members of the Lucasville Five, and encouraging him to testify against them. In 2010, former Ohio prosecutor Daniel Hogan admitted on tape that it was not possible to know for certain who was responsible for the deaths, and that he did not believe the identity of those responsible would ever be discovered. Three other survivors have stated under oath that the leader of the so-called death squad during the uprising was in fact a prisoner who became a key witness for the state prosecution and was instrumental in securing its cases against the Lucasville Five. Despite widespread condemnation and protests, these men, among them former KiteLine contributor Keith Lamar, who has now spent over two decades in solitary confinement on death row, remain behind bars with little to no hope of ever being freed. For more information about their cases and to learn how you can support the Lucasville Five, visit lucasvilleamnesty.org. This is Kevin Rashid Johnson. I'm speaking in the interest of the upcoming prisoner strike set to begin August 21st, set to carry on until September the 9th by prisoners across the nation who are challenging and coming out in opposition to conditions of social injustice, abuse, extensive solitary confinements, deprivation of basic rights and necessities, and the general injustice and inhumanities of what today is the largest prison system in the world, the United States. We call on the general public to give as much support for this struggle and all of those who possibly can to engage and join in this struggle because slavery has not been abolished. And this is only a continuation of the struggle to abolish slavery in America. And we need all possible support and all possible involvement. All power to the people. 
but I was just recently returned back to Virginia from Florida, and that was in response to some of the, the challenges we were making down there to the uh, conditions and generally slave labor, the exploitation of the prisoners down there through price gouging in the commissary and the uh, packaging services, and they were trying to reinstate the good uh, time and parole that were taken in exchange for over sentencing credits or time credits, and that was something that was initiated under the Operation Push in January of this year, where there was a work strike and a conversation, and based on some of the organizing that was going on and the conditions we were challenging there with respect to some of the abuses at the institutions I was at, which was Santa Rosa, where guards were systemically involved in manipulating business and violent messes with each other and some of the abuses that were coming out of the institution that I was publicizing through articles. Uh, they apparently contacted Virginia, told Virginia to come get me. They gave them an ultimatum. I think they contacted them on the 10th of June and told them to have me out of there by the 15th. So they ended up flying me back to Virginia on the 12th and I was returned to Red Onion. Following which they transferred me from Red Onion to Sussex One and have confined me now to a permanent solitary confinement that is without any real valid justification. It's pretty much in response to a lot of the exposure that I've been involved in with the nation to prison abuses and the inhumane conditions of the institutions. So that's pretty much my situation right now. I'd really like to see as much support as possible being given to the, you know, the series of struggles that are taking place, you know, across the country, challenging the slave labor, the prison, and abuses in the institutions, those things. That's really what I'd like to see much of the focus on is the, what I would call the slave movement challenging both prison abuses and the ongoing conditions of slave labor in America however much attention we can bring outside exposure to these prevailing conditions. I think that would build strong support and alliances which would not only bolster prisoners' activism on the inside, but would also bring to the public consciousness that there are some extremely oppressive conditions existing within the conditions of confinement in America that really need to be addressed. In terms of the the history of prisoner-led social struggle and social movement, I mean, essentially, you know, resistance against this kind of racialized violence has been happening since the, you know, advent of slavery and then the prison system. But what a lot of folks who are, you know, doing outside prisoner support work are focusing on really events that have transpired in like the last, I don't know, eight to ten years really starting off with the 2010 Georgia statewide uh, work stoppages and strikes there. So 2010, we saw one of the largest strikes in recent history, and we also saw that prisoners across facilities in Georgia were coordinating with each other, were talking with each other, were, you know, sending messages back and forth. Um, about engaging in a work stoppage to, you know, withhold uh, slave labor and to sort of, you know, bring the system to its knees internally. 
Um, and since 2010, you know, we saw the huge hunger strikes that occurred in Pelican Bay and across California um, to protest the extensive use of solitary confinement. And that, you know, saw um, several thousand folks engaging in that. So, um, you know, we're sort of like seeing um, an increase or an upping the ante um, each time these major uh, coordinated actions take place. Because then after um, Pelican Bay in California, we saw that Free Alabama movement sort of coalesced and emerged and were inspired by Georgia um, and this sort of like concept of withholding uh, labor from the system and not participating in the functioning of, you know, everyday prison operations. And so um, Free Alabama Movement sort of engaged in these like local or statewide actions, but then in 2015 started to sort of call for a nationwide prison strike to use their quote to let the crops rot in the fields um, and to really sort of, you know, damage the the oppressive system where it hurts the most, which again is making money off of their backs and also it has a need, an intense need for prisoner labor again to just sort of like have, you know, the food cooked for everyone to feed them, um, to do the laundry, to clean the facilities, etc. And so of course in 2016 we see this huge nationwide work stoppage, but also um, folks engaging in uh, strikes and, and solidarity actions and hunger strikes from solitary confinement as well. And we saw that happen on this huge scale, and um, folks are estimating, you know, close to 60,000 prisoners were either directly or indirectly affected by that. And I say indirectly because, you know, the action of a few prisoners could shut down an entire facility, which then will shut down the work operations for several thousand prisoners. So these kinds of actions in the past eight to ten years, again, have taken on a new shape and a new form. I'll quickly sort of talk about this recent call for another nationwide coordinated prison strike before I go back into the the longer history of this, because I think that's also important. But essentially, 2016 kicked off. It was huge. It was it was fantastic. However, there was a lot of retaliation. There was a lot of extreme violence and repression against rebels and those who are identified as either leaders or troublemakers. So I don't want to sort of glorify that without also mentioning the very real costs and violence that that incurred. So, you know, last year we had um, another series of actions in Black, during Black August, the Millions for Prisoners March. Last August, the Millions for Prisoners March occurred and, and was called for by inside rebels, but they were mostly focusing on getting outside supporters to do community demos, teach-ins, marches, etc., to sort of raise awareness about the new form of slavery within prison. 
And while that was happening, for the most part, many um, prison rebels and, and leaders were sort of keeping their heads low and waiting it out to call for another nationwide strike. Jailhouse Lawyer Speak is a collective of incarcerated rebels and jailhouse lawyers and prisoner advocates who, again, were going to hold off on calling for a coordinated, coordinated prison strike until the summer of 2019. However, in April of this past year, uh, Lee Correctional Facility in South Carolina saw one of the bloodiest riots that has happened in recent years, where unfortunately seven prisoners lost their lives. This was prisoner-on-prisoner violence. However, it resulted from a powder keg that the prison officials and the guards themselves had created and actually allowed to happen uh, while they sat back, watched the violence unfold for several hours uh, without getting up out of their chairs or lifting a finger to intervene, and by housing rival gang members in the same unit um, and sort of stoking the fire before it started. And so because Lee Correctional Facility saw this bloody toll, jailhouse lawyers speak, basically said, okay, we can't wait anymore. This has now reached a new level of urgency. This is intolerable and also calling for collective action at this time will be the thing that sort of shifts prisoners' focus away from horizontal violence and uh, sort of allow them to channel their rage towards the prison system that, again, is creating this powder keg and creating this inner conflict. So Jailhouse Lawyers Speak took the lead and, uh, again, you know, called for a nationwide prison strike in 2018. And um, I think it's very important, again, to sort of, you know, tie it in with this recent history, but also the dates in which they called for this action are very, very important to the longer history of prisoner-led social movements. So the dates they called for are August 21st to September 9th. It's a 19-day, you know, work stoppage or hunger strike or whatever other kinds of actions that prisoners want to take. August 21st being the date that George Jackson was assassinated in a California prison in 1971 by California prison officials. And George Jackson, of course, is very important to prisoner-led social movements. He was a black freedom fighter, an intellectual. He was, you know, very prolific and very important to this movement. And also a month in which incarcerated black rebels often, you know, reflect on Afrocentric movements and black liberationist thought and how the prison system has been a tool used by the state to control revolutionaries and to prevent black-led social movements from getting off the ground or by actively infiltrating them and sabotaging those movements if they are in full swing. August 21st is the day that George Jackson was assassinated, 
and September 9th of that same year in 1971, the Attica Rebellion began in Attica, New York, um, in the prison there, which saw a huge um, multiracial coalition that sort of, you know, took to the yard, staged a huge protest and made demands of the prison officials for increased rights and access to media and all of the other things that they were they were looking for in terms of asserting their political personhoods. And now we're here in 2018 seeing black freedom fighters, but also incarcerated folks from many different racial groups sort of calling for this Uh, 19-day, very intentional series of actions, again, calling for work stoppages, hunger strikes, and other solidarity actions. In the 1970s, I think that for outside social movements, um, there was a very real recognition, especially among the black community in the United States, that um, jails and prisons were um, an, a tool used to prevent their movements from gaining any traction or from gaining any um, sense of power. We saw many black revolutionaries being framed by COINTELPRO, being, you know, given these exorbitant sentences and You know, in the 80s and the 90s, we saw the state sort of transform its use of prison and jail as something to control drugs and drug use, right? So it became very much more coded. And I think in the 70s, you know, from my readings and talking with um, older black revolutionaries, I, I get the sense that it was, they had a much clearer idea that the carceral apparatus was in direct response to the civil rights era and also the black power era of the 60s and the 70s. And so, you know, outside support sort of already had that framework and very much understood that fighting back against the prison state had to be a central part of outside-led social movements. So, of course, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, we continued to see the prison apparatus grow and increase and accelerate in ways that are still incomprehensible and massive and surprising. But I think that the separation between outside social movements and the use of repression by way of prison, that distance grew and grew in a way where maybe, you know, social movements didn't make that link to the necessity for fighting the carceral state. Um, Of course, anarchist black crosses existed. Of course, Jericho movement still existed. Those organizations existed throughout all of this and never stopped doing their work. But I think it's just recently that Radicals and even liberals are understanding how the prison state is being used, how different legislative measures are being used to repress social movements, and how they're being used inside the prison system to 
repressed social movements that are led by prisoners. So it seems as though, um, and this is just my take, I'm sure that, you know, uh, folks may have a different opinion, but it seems as though in the past 10 years that there's been um, more interest from outside groups in supporting uh, prison rebels, um, particularly prison rebels who didn't identify as political before their involvement in politics um, or who were not locked up on a quote-unquote political charge to begin with. So I think the shape of the prisoner-led social movement is changing. Folks who are perhaps getting radicalized through literature behind bars or are getting radicalized by participating in actions behind bars and experiencing um, the severe repressive terror that the prison system can inflict on people. So with the call-out for the... 2018 nationwide prison strikes. Many of the state officials, prison officials, are trying to get their ear to the ground and uh, figure out what's going on because of the immense and monumental impact that the 2016 nationwide prison strike. Because of that, they are taking a lot of preemptive measures to take down incarcerated rebels and leaders within the prison system. They are moving people around from facility to facility to disrupt their organizing efforts. And they are taking extreme horrific action against a few key incarcerated rebels. You know, some of those folks I just sort of want to name right now, uh, like Jason Renard Walker, who is incarcerated in Texas. He has been continuously harassed by staff. He's been rejected food and water on occasion. Some reports are coming out about that. Other repressed efforts are being had against Imam Sadiqa Hassan, who is a very outspoken guy on death row, who's been on death row for 24 years in the state of Ohio, and who has been a very vocal supporter of all of these strikes, including during the 2016 revolt. And right now, he is being charged with inciting a riot and has been transferred to the whole. So he's being um, held in segregation, and that means that he's being restricted from his daily phone call allowance, he's being restricted from visitations, and from his ability to organize from his cell. Some other actions are being taken against Kevin Rashid Johnson, who's been transferred a few times now, and, you know, he has had his belongings taken away, and he's a prolific illustrator and artist, so that's, you know, a huge blow. Michael Kimball and several others at Holman Facility, which has seen a lot of actions and revolts in the past several years. They've been thrown into segregation, and comrade uh, uh, Malik Washington has also experienced severe forms of repression, has been kept in segregation even though he's been promised a date out. Um, And with comrade Malik, it's a bit dangerous because he has um, issues with chronic seizures and he is being kept in a hot box, essentially a sweat box, where the heat 
is intolerable. And of course, it's Texas. It gets up to, you know, over a hundred degrees and in the cell with the sun shining in it, it's particularly bad. So these are really important figures in the movement. They're not the only ones, but these kinds of actions that are being taken against them and these horrible conditions that are being they're thrust upon them is meant to deter future and potential rebels from rising up. So in terms of this repression, just like we would have our crews back on the outside during a street action and, you know, getting them bailed out of jail, we have to understand these incarcerated folks as also needing the equivalence of that support. And of course, it looks different because they are within the belly of the beast. Sometimes we don't live in the same state as these folks, but all of their information is publicly available online. And they, of course, could use words of support and call-in campaigns, which are effective. It's won them the, you know, right to access their medication again. It's won them their ability to be transferred to a different facility if they are in an unsafe facility. Prisonstrike.com is a relatively new clearinghouse website that will direct you to key websites that have all this information on it. And so I would encourage people to, again, understand these freedom fighters as being in, you know, huge peril. In some ways, they are fighting for their lives, literally, and, of course, could use all the support that they could get. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.